there are problematic forms of metaphysics that if we use it in reading the biblical text, uh, will we'll hinder our worship of God. So if we use a purely modern hermeneutic, one that is based on a separation, on a, on a dichotomy between heavenly and earthly realities, if we use that kind of a hermeneutic, based on, if we use a hermeneutic based on that kind of a metaphysic, um, we're shortchanging the biblical text. Such a view, for one, for example, just to give you one example, such a view does not take into account God's providence. It does not take into account that maybe God purposely put things in the biblical text in, of the Old Testament site. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. Did you know that the church father, Gregory of Nyssa, once used an illustration that I just love and I think actually could be quite helpful as we think about the relationship between God and biblical interpretation? He used the illustration of a peacock, and he said, when you look at the back of a peacock, it seems, well, very plain. Perhaps brown is all you see, but as you turn the peacock around, you begin to see just a display of one color after another. And when you look at the peacock as a whole, you see a beautiful arrangement of colors from the peacock's feathers. Well, this illustration from Gregory is, I think at least, uh, very appropriate because if we treat the Bible just like any other book, or if we just come to the Bible as if perhaps with the assumption that it's just an ordinary book like any other book, it looks quite plain to us. In fact, we might even start to use a type of hermeneutic that uh, treats the Bible in the same manner as if we just kind of read it like a hard science and uh, just assume whatever the plain meaning or reading of the text is, that's all there is to it. But actually, I would argue that we need to turn the peacock around In fact, we need to have sort of a God's eye point of view, one that sees uh, his authorship from beginning to end and sees how he has embedded even types throughout uh, that ultimately point to the advent of his own son, Jesus Christ. All that to say, while it is good to exercise and to retrieve good tools of uh, hermeneutics like original languages and syntax or doing word searches or paying attention to paying attention to say original audience uh, or even the historical uh, context while all of that may be good if that becomes our strict focus or our mere focus we might even start to treat theology or metaphysics as completely irrelevant to the task of biblical interpretation Well, if you've been listening to the Credo podcast long enough, then you know that who God is makes a huge difference for the way we read the Bible, or at least the way we should read the Bible. 
in theology, what we like to say is that metaphysics really matters for hermeneutics. And for this reason, the church fathers oftentimes were exemplary in the way they interpreted Scripture. And even though they're not paid to much, we don't give them much attention today, uh, retrieving many of these church fathers, not just for our theology, say, of the Trinity, but for our biblical exegesis can prove very, very fruitful. To discuss these issues, I've asked Hans Borsma to come on the Creo podcast and to discuss with us why we've fallen into this uh, contemporary, modern dualism between, say, the visible and the invisible, why it is that uh, we don't tend to turn to the fathers to uh, help us when interpreting Scripture, and how we can actually recover a type of hermeneutic that moves us beyond just, say, the plain look at the peacock and actually takes us to the very meaning that God intended uh, and that the very, the very way that God intended us to read the Scriptures from beginning to end as they point to and ultimately culminate in, in the coming of His own Son, Jesus Christ. You may have read many of Hans' books in the past. Uh, some of the books that I think our listeners will find uh, so instructive is, well, one of them is Heavenly Participation, a book that uh, gets at uh, that church father, Gregory of Nyssa, that I mentioned earlier. Uh, the subtitle says a lot, the, the Weaving of Sacramental Tapestry. And if you've read Hans' books uh, very often, then you may also notice that many of his books focus on this theme of sacrament, such as his book, Sacramental Preaching, uh, Sermons on the Hidden Presence of Christ, as well as uh, a couple more recent books, including Scripture as Real Presence, Sacramental Exegesis in the Early Church, and another book that has gotten a lot of attention and has been quite popular recently, Seeing God, a book on the beatific vision. Hans, thank you so much uh, for joining me on the Credo Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, uh, Matthew. It's a joy to be with you. Now, before we get started and dive into some of the Church Fathers, uh, maybe you could say a word. I know you've recently made a career transition uh, from Regent, where you've taught for so many years. I think I'm right in saying 14, year, 14 years. Is that right? That's correct. I was there for 14 years, yeah. yeah. And where have you transitioned to now? Uh, I've transitioned to Neshota House Theological Seminary, a, uh, an Anglo-Catholic seminary in Wisconsin. Okay, okay. And what and will you be... there now for just over a year. Just over a year. And for those listeners who may be uh, interested in, in uh, looking at uh, you know, what you're doing there, what subjects are you teaching and uh, what are you exploring in some of your lectures? Um, well, I'm teaching a course right now on participation in the history of both the Eastern and Western Church, of so the relationship between creator and creature, how that's understood, um, how that was understood by various theologians, East and West. And I'm also teaching a course at the moment on uh, historical theology, an overview course of the first part of historical theology. I mostly do, do writing, reading and writing. And um, uh, at the moment, I'm filling in for somebody, which is why I'm doing a regular course load at the moment. Okay. Now, in, your, in many of your writings, but I've noticed most recently in uh, a book like Scripture is Real Presence, uh, you're starting to focus more and more 
on uh, this theme of biblical interpretation, specifically, though, the dichotomy, as you call it, that's taken place mm-hmm. in the modern era. What is this dichotomy between, say, the visible and the invisible and, and how moderns look at the world? And how would you say uh, earlier Christians, uh, how did they understand the world, including their understanding of God, in a way that differed so drastically? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the underlying question indeed for, for how to understand what has happened to biblical interpretation over the centuries. Um, for for um, the last number of, of, of centuries, particularly since the 17th century, but really it's a process that, that has gone on for, for longer than that, but especially, I would say, since the 17th century. Um, increasingly, we have come to, to understand the, uh, the created world, the material world, on its own terms. We, we've tried to understand it as much as possible empirically through the senses, and and we've more or less begun to work with a conviction that once we understand the world empirically, once we've got the DNA of it, as it were, uh, we truly and fully grasp it. We comprehend it in, in, in all that it is. Um, now, what that, what, it, what that essentially means, that strong focus on the empirical and that strong focus on, on the sensible realities around us, is um, that in order to explain the world, um, we no longer need anything supernatural. We no longer need uh, the spiritual world. We no longer need heavenly realities. If the world is understandable simply by by, uh, looking at it and by analyzing what it is that we see, um, we, we can bracket the spiritual world. We can bracket heavenly realities. We can bracket God himself. And uh, increasingly, therefore, we've pushed away from us uh, supernatural realities. We've pushed God out of the picture, as it were. Um, uh, Hence the rise of of secularity and of secularism in the Western world. Now, um, that that's that's a dichotomy of sorts, a dichotomy between heavenly and earthly realities, between supernatural and, and nature, um, between intelligible realities and, and sensible realities. It's a dichotomy which tries to explain this worldly things on their own terms and which then perhaps may or may not have use for anything else, for the spiritual. Um, that dichotomy has had a huge impact also on how we read the scriptures. Um, we've come to, to treat the scriptures, you could say, just as we have come to treat the world around us. Um, just by analyzing the scriptures empirically, as it were, or you could also say by giving a historical exegesis of the text, by trying to understand the text on its own terms, by analyzing the DNA, as it were, we figure we can come to a complete and accurate understanding of what the text means. We don't need faith, in other words, to understand the meaning of the biblical text. We don't need the supernatural to understand the meaning of the biblical text. Um, so we've come to think. Um, in the earlier, earlier history of the Church, 
um, the link between the spiritual and, and the physical, between the intelligible and the sensible, uh, was much closer. It was, as I, as I put it in some of my books, it, it was understood to be a sacramental relationship between those two realities. Mm. A sacramental relationship, which is to say, um, God makes himself present, really present, sacramental. God makes himself really present um, throughout the poetic order. And a Christian would say, God makes himself particularly present um, in the scriptures themselves. All of the scriptures, therefore, um, should be read with a view to that quote-unquote intelligible reality, which which we understand to be Jesus Christ himself. And so what the earlier tradition typically, typically will do is, is it will always... It will always in, interrogate the text, as it were, if that's the right term, but investigate and look at the text by, by searching there for the hidden meaning of Jesus Christ himself. Whatever else you may, you may want to do with a biblical text, the purpose is always for the earlier tradition to look there for the presence of Jesus. Now, when you use that language, I imagine for some of our listeners, they might start to get nervous and they think, well, uh, I don't want to, say, impose something on the text that isn't there, and so I'm just going to just focus on the grammar and the historical context, and, and that's, I'm, I'm just going to stop at that point. And some of them might even go so far to think, uh, I don't want to even enter into, say, discussions of theology or metaphysics um, because that might um, that might actually bias my reading of the text in a way that doesn't uh, do justice to what's there in the text. But I'm thinking you're actually going to push back against that. Uh, it seems like, uh, based on what you just said, you believe there actually is a crucial role for metaphysics when we are going about the discipline of hermeneutics, is it is is hermeneutics then not uh, a a value free endeavor? It's not, on my understanding. It's not. Let me first, in responding to that quite common objection, really, let, let me first affirm the truth element in it because there's a huge truth element in it. I think uh, the person that brings up this objection is rightly concerned that we should not impose something alien upon the biblical text. That's a sensibility, a sensitivity that I, that I wholeheartedly endorse. We dare not impose our own subjective categories onto the, onto the, whole, uh, the Holy Scriptures themselves. And it's precisely that conviction that has driven me over the years to say we need to take metaphysics more seriously than we often do. Um, we tend to think when we, when we make a defense for a strictly historical reading of the text, we tend to think that, we've, that we're bracketing metaphysics and that we perhaps even don't deal with it at all and that we, we have a straightforward reading of the biblical text. The reality is, I think, that we are unawares and with all good intentions but unaware, smuggling in our own metaphysics into the biblical text. And the metaphysic that we employ 
is a modern one, a modern one that tends to think that we can grasp um, what it, whatever it is that we see in front of us fully, completely, and adequately uh, by using empirical analysis. Um, the kind of things that you've talked about, um, investigation of, 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 of historical context, investigation of literary genre, uh, looking at, at, what kind, at, at word studies, these are kind of things that one typically does in historical exegesis, things that in and of themselves are, from my understanding at least, perfectly good things to do. However, uh, even, even these, these quote-unquote empirical things that we observe in the biblical text, um, can you be understood strictly on their own terms, as if they were neutral things out there simply to be taken in? Um, whatever it is that's in the biblical text is there because God has placed it there. And God places it there with a particular purpose. We always need to ask ourselves in reading the biblical text, why is it there? Why did God give this? And it's always with a view to worshiping him. Mm. The Bible is not like any other book in that regard. It's meant for worship. It's meant for adoration. The, the, the reason why um, earlier traditions of Christians employed metaphysics was not in order to impose an alien metaphysic on the biblical text, but precisely to make people aware that um, there are problematic forms of metaphysics that if we use it in reading the biblical text, uh, will we'll hinder our worship of God. So if we use a purely modern hermeneutic, one that is based on a separation, on a, on a dichotomy between heavenly and earthly realities, if we use that kind of a hermeneutic, based on, if we use a hermeneutic based on that kind of a metaphysic, um, we're shortchanging the biblical text. Mm. Such a view, for one, for example, just to give you one example, such a view does not take into account God's providence. It does not take into account that maybe God purposely put things in the biblical text in, of the Old Testament site um, that is meant to remind later generations um, of the truth of the Trinity or of the... Um, the divinity of Jesus Christ. Mm. Earlier generations of Christians, theologians, were, were far more aware of these theological categories because they had a metaphysic that opened them up to those categories. A modern metaphysic, a modern metaphysic typically, because it's restricted to this world, the empirical analysis, closes our horizons often to the kind of theological uh, starting point and, and also purpose that we need to have in our reading of, of the scriptures. You know, what you just said is, is so important. It reminds me of the, the entire debate, ongoing debate, really, about typology and how we right. understand, say, the uh, Old Testament in light of the New Testament. You know, there's some out there who will say things like, well, typology cannot be exegesis, or th maybe they'll say, well, I'll affirm typology, but it's merely an application of the text, and, mm -hmm. and they might even advise preachers along those lines as well. However, um, 
I, I'm guessing you would actually push back against that and say, well, if the divine author works in a providential way, even in a supernatural way across all of redemptive history, and if if his intent is embedded throughout, uh, ultimately culminating in, you know, you mentioned the Trinity, the divinity of Christ, all of this, and ultimately culminating in the coming of his own son, uh, could we... Could we actually argue that no typology isn't just a mere, say, application of the text, but typology is is exegesis itself is actually quite crucial to understanding the text. How how would you think along those lines? Uh, my understanding, typology is grounded in the character of God, in the faithfulness of God. Um, what typology typically does is it looks for correspondences or similarities between, say, an Old Testament type. Uh, you could think, for example, about the sacrifice of, of Isaac, Genesis chapter 22. And then the later New Testament antitype, say, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Um, there's a type and an antitype. And what a, a an exegesis does that wants to take the relationship between between nature and the supernatural, between heaven and earth, seriously, that wants to to understand them as closely interwoven. What such a view does is it will say, well, if God truly is at work, if divine providence truly is at work, both in history and in the authorship and composition of of the Holy Scriptures, then the correspondences that we see in the in the biblical text through the centuries in in salvation history um, are divinely given. Then they are grounded in in the fact that they come from one and the same God who acts in similar ways across history. And so the similarities are not things that we impose on the biblical text that we discover in the biblical text. That's also why I'm so sympathetic to the earlier objection that you mentioned to imposing our own alien metaphysic. We dare not impose on the biblical text. But if indeed, uh, thanks to um, God's constant faithfulness um, throughout history, there are similarities between the way God acted, say, in Genesis 22, in connection with Abraham and Isaac, and then again later on in connection with his own son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. If there are those similarities, uh, because God himself is one and the same God in both instances, uh, then I think topology is something that you would expect. And then you would naturally read Genesis 22 in the light of um, Christ's self-sacrifice on the cross. And that's just um, one, one, I think, fairly, fairly obvious example. Um, but I think this typological understanding is one that um, uh, is, is, is present throughout the scriptures. Um, the scriptures themselves often uh, engage in such a typological reading. You only have to think of, of uh, already within the Old Testament itself, of, uh, for example, Isaiah's insistence that there's going to be another quote-unquote exodus, and with that he means a return from exile, and um, how in the um, how, how the New Testament epistles of, of Paul, for example, often use language of, of a return from exile 
to describe our uh, redemption from sin. There are similarities as well as dissimilarities. That's what topology is. Um, but they're linked together, these Old and New Testament realities, because God's self-revelation in Christ um, is, is anchored in his own faithfulness. Mm. This, you know, this discussion uh, takes us back to even our understanding or pre-understanding of history itself, and it raises uh, an issue that we really need to answer, and it's this. You know, when we look at history, we tend to think in a very linear way, uh, even in a, a very chronological way. Perhaps that's in part due to the fact that, um, well, that's how we tend to experience it. But when we're talking mm-hmm. about, say, the canon of Scripture in light of the divine author, who, of course, defies all limitations of, of time and space, and when we consider you know, what you just said about divine providence even, well, you use this word called participation to say perhaps we should look at, at history as a way of participating in God's providential work. Maybe you could flesh that out a little bit. What do you mean by, in, ter- in light of pr- what you've just said about providence and typology in particular, and what do you mean by participation? Yes. Yeah, first, let me maybe maybe say for your for your listeners, maybe helpful to know that um, when we're talking about this redemptive history that that unfolds over time, that unfolds chronologically, so that one event happens after the next, um, and that we can trace this more or less at least um, throughout the scriptures. Um, or by observing that the development, the chronological uh, unfolding. We're not, we're not doing anything wrong. We're, we're rightly seeing this kind of a, um, redemptive history unfold throughout the scriptures. Um, and, and within that history, there is, uh, that we can observe types and antitypes and so on. But all of, that, all of that unfolds slowly but surely through the centuries over time. That's entirely correct, and there's nothing in that really that I would want to correct. It's just that taken by itself, such an understanding, even if it uses topology, such an understanding is, is, is incomplete. It's limited. And the way it's limited is, is as follows. Um, we, we have on that understanding, if that's all it is by itself, we've, we've, we've basically closed the sky upon ourselves, as it were. We've, we've bought into the dichotomy that we talked about earlier. Um, because it's not only true that events happen over time and, and that one event happens chronologically after another. But if it is true that um, God eternally oversees this entire economy of salvation, this entire history of salvation, if it's true that he oversees that from all eternity in his word, in his eternal word, our Lord Jesus Christ, um, then um, the central event within history, namely God taking on human flesh in his son, is the one event that we could say is, is the originating event of all events. It's the archetype, uh, Edward Pusey would say. It's the archetype. It's the original type. It's the one that, that sets everything off, even though it's not the first thing in history. It's in the middle of history. But it sets everything off. And, and everything that God does, all the earlier types, 
uh, and all the subsequent unfolding in church history is is all patterned on that on that great event that goes that shows God's faithfulness, namely God manifesting or revealing Himself in Jesus Christ. Um, and it is it is it is that the centrality of that event. Um, that warrants, I think, um, are looking for the kind of similarities that we that we that we're looking for both prior to that event and subsequent to that event. What's more, you're asking about about participation, meaning of participation. What's more, um, those earlier events and those later events, you could say, participate, share in the one central event of God's self-manifestation in Jesus Christ. Everything, to varying degrees, to be sure, but everything that leads up to it and everything that unfolds from it um, has its starting point in God's self-revelation in Jesus Christ, in that archetype. What that means, I think, is that not only should we look for a, a chronological unfolding of history, of separate events, but we should see all of these events as as participating in God's providence in His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. That means that we that there is a vertical dimension to to the Christian faith um, that was absolutely central both to the Church Fathers and to medieval theologians, and to a large extent also to the Reformers. Um, and that I, I I am concerned we have we have lost with our with our unmitigated. Um, focus on 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 uh, on history and on authorial intent. Um, the the vertical focus of the earlier tradition um, recognized that what we call history uh, lies anchored vertically in God Himself. Um, there is a chronological unfolding, of course, in time. Um, but the various moments in time um, are one in God's eternal providential care. Uh, so again, to go back to the example of, of, of uh, Genesis 22, of the sacrifice of Isaac, um, the sacrifice of Isaac, um, Jesus' self-sacrifice on the cross, and our sacrifice of thanksgiving in the Lord's Supper or in the Eucharist, um, they are united. <laughs> They are typologically uh, connected over time, to be sure, but they're also united. They're one because in Jesus Christ, in God's self-revelation, um, in Jesus Christ on the cross, they are united. So there's a vertical dimension to the Christian faith that uh, that um, I think we need to recover and that grounds a, a more spiritual reading of the biblical text. Maybe it would help uh, to think of a, a few uh, two in particular, two examples of uh, church fathers who really put into practice exactly what you're talking about. Uh, the first one I want to draw our attention to is Irenaeus. Uh, Irenaeus uh, loved to talk about this concept of recapitulation and uh, how recapitulation enabled him to uh, see not just what was on the surface in the Old Testament, but to actually see a Christ in the Old Testament and to, dare I say, even read the Old Testament as, say, the apostles read the Old Testament. Now, 
in light of uh, Irenaeus and this concept of recapitulation, perhaps you could define what, what does Irenaeus mean by this? And how does recapitulation become uh, the, the proper interpretive lens for reading the Old Testament uh, in, in the eyes of Irenaeus? Yes, um, that's a great question. Um, Irenaeus' understanding of recapitulation um, is grounded in, um, in, in Ephesians, uh, which, which, in, uh, which tells us that, that Christ um, recapitulates all things. And, and, the, and, and the, the, the Greek term there is, 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 is the very same as our Latinized English term, recapitulation. It, it simply means, um, uh, caput is, in Latin means head. Uh, so, so, so everything comes to a head, as it were. Christ is the head who sums up everything that precedes him. And so, in his own, um, in, in his incarnation, in his, in his, um, in the way that he lives, in everything that he does, um, as well as in his suffering and death, he retraces, as it were. He sums up as the head. Um, the 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 life of everything and 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 the, the 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 failed life we should really say the failed the failed um, journey of of human existence up to that point Christ to use to use Pauline language Christ is the second Adam um, he retraces the life of the first Adam but whereas the first Adam failed in paradise in the face of temptation Christ does not fail. Uh, in, in Matthew chapter 4 and parallels, Christ does not fail um, as he retraces Adamic existence. So he's the second Adam is, based, is essentially what, um, uh, what Irenaeus is saying. And when he makes that claim, he's not only saying, uh, well, because Christ is the second Adam, um, um, those who are in Adam, the, the, the sons and daughters of Adam, are saved in Christ. He is saying that, to be sure. That's part of, his, of, of what he's saying. But he's also saying um, that in himself, um, Christ, um, Christ uh, retraces um, the Old Testament story. Um, he has a beautiful statement that I'd I just briefly like to quote here. He, he writes somewhere in his book against heresies, Christ was sold with Joseph, died at Abraham. He was bound along with Isaac. He wandered with Jacob. With Moses, he was a leader, respecting the people legislator. He preached in the prophets. You see, what Irenaeus is doing is he's saying um, when, when, when God becomes incarnate in Christ, um, Christ lives a life that retraces that entire story. And because he retraces it, uh, that, that entire story, that earlier story, is one um, that is patterned on him and is one that therefore uh, is, is one therefore in which we can discover uh, the presence of Jesus himself. So there's a close, close unity between Old and New Testaments um, on Irenaeus's understanding. Uh, the new retraces the old. Christ retraces uh, the life of Adam. He retraces the life of, of, of Israel. And because that is so, we can now read uh, the Old Testament as, as, um, um, as, as containing the pattern, you could say, as containing the pattern of Jesus Christ himself. 
you know, whether it's Irideus or another church father, uh, I'm reminded that they often operated by the rule of faith. And when yes. they interpreted or, or just even approached the, the text of Scripture, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, uh, they did so in light of all of Scripture. Um, the rule of faith, uh, it's, it's gospel summary of really the spirit of the Scriptures themselves. Well, that informed and guided and sometimes even guarded them from interpretations that were simply out of bounds or um, just not consistent with either the character of God or his plan of salvation or how he has mm-hmm. revealed himself uh, through his own son. Now, that being said, as we inch closer to a figure like Athanasius, especially in light of, I mean, when, when our listeners hear the, word, hear the name Athanasius, immediately they think of the Trinitarian debates of the fourth century uh, between, say, Arianism and, uh, say, the rise of the Council of Nicaea. But sometimes what we forget is that many of these debates, uh, more often than not, were grounded in scriptural hermeneutical issues, uh, how to interpret the text. How did, uh, say, the rule of faith, I mean, as you, you have studied the Father so much, how did the rule of faith inform and really assist uh, the patristic tradition to interpret the text in a way that guarded them from, say, what the Arians prided themselves on, which was what they called the plain reading of the text? Yes, great question. Um, In some sense, you could say that um, in the 4th century, uh, theologians such as Athanasius were, were, were somewhat on the defensive, um, in, in, in some of their exegesis, um, you, you're quite right that the reading of Scripture that the, uh, church, the church fathers such as Athanasius engaged in uh, was, was a ruled reading. It was, that is to say, it was a reading, an interpretation that took the rule, uh, the guide of faith, the rule of faith, the basic confession of the church, you could say, as its starting point. Um, any reading of, of, of the Scriptures uh, any interpretation of the scriptures had to conform to the rule of faith, not because the rule of faith was something alien to be imposed upon the text, but because any other reading, any reading that was out of bounds with regard to the rule of faith, with regard to the basic confession of, of the church, um, was not a, a faithful reading um, as the church had come to recognize it uh, through the centuries. Um, in other words, the scriptures themselves could could on, could be done justice only if one took the rule of faith seriously. Mm-hmm. According to Athanasius, the way Athanasius put it is, is as follows: We have to, he said, we have to do justice to the mind, to the dianoia, to the mind of God, um, as we as we have confessed it in the rule of faith. Now, the difficulty, one of the difficulties that the pro-Nicene theologians, such as Athanasius, face is that um, at, at, on the surface level, you could almost say on a strictly historical reading of the text, although that's not the language that Athanasius used, but let's just say on the, on, the, on, a, on, a, on the surface level of the text, some of the passages that were under debate between the Arians and the uh, and the pro-Nicenes 
uh, might actually seem to seem to support um, an Aryan reading and might might give the impression, oh well, maybe maybe the son is not of the same substance as the father. Um, when, uh, for example, Proverbs eight, uh, Proverbs eight was 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 hugely in in discussion in the fourth century all the time among among theologians. Um, when Proverbs eight talked about wisdom. And when it talks about this wisdom um, uh, having been created and having been founded and established, when it uses when it uses this kind of language, especially in the verses 22 through 25 of Proverbs 8, um, the the Aryans immediately jumped and said, "Well, isn't this an obvious instance of wisdom?" namely Jesus Christ, and they all agreed to refer to Jesus Christ. Uh, isn't this an obvious, obvious instance of, of, of wisdom um, being later the second person of the Trinity, if, or as, we, as we would today call it, of the Son being later than the Father? And if the Son is later than the Father, then he is less than the Father. Such was the Arian reading of Proverbs 8. Um, and um, this 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 objection from the Aryan side um, created not a little amount of soul searching among among pro Nicene theologians. How should we read um, Proverbs eight in such a way that we stay in line with the Dianoia, with the mind of the Scriptures, and in such a way that we uh, are faithful to the rule of faith? It was a difficult question. For, for pro-Nicene theologians, and they don't, they did not always um, come to the same answer. Uh, Gregory Nyssa comes with one answer, Athanasius comes, in fact, Athanasius comes with different answers at different times on how to read, <laughs> how to read this passage correctly. But what, what, uh, what united, I think, Gregory Nyssa and Athanasius in their, in their, um, Reading of these of these particular words that seem to uh, support a subordinationist Aryan view is their insistence that we read these verbs, these words, uh, allegorically. We cannot simply take them at the literal level as referring to wisdom having been uh, begotten or having been founded or created at some particular point. We have to recognize that there is a deeper meaning in these verbs, um, in these words that refer us to specific, um, specific uh, uh, references with regard to, to Jesus Christ and with regard to the church. And that conviction uh, allowed them to come with, a, with, a, with an interpretation of that of that um, that section in Proverbs eight um, that that countered an Aryan reading. Now, some of those are more convincing than others, um, but the the basic point uh, um, in this debate is that the Aryans um, were, um, um, as as Gregor Nyssa puts it at one point, slaves of the letter. That is to say. Mm-hmm. They wanted a strictly historical reading of the text, also of Proverbs 8. And um, the pro-Nicene theologians recognized that with a strictly historical reading of the text, you do not arrive at Nicaea. You do not arrive at a homoousian confession of the Christian faith. Mm. We've been talking to Hans Borsma 
about the nature of hermeneutics, specifically the importance of metaphysics and the divine author in the way we interpret the text. And what I like so much about Hans's writings is he not only takes us back to, say, fathers like Irenaeus or perhaps uh, Athanasius, as he was just talking about, but he takes us back to the scriptures themselves, and he helps us to understand not just that the canon of scripture is a unity, but that God himself is the author, and that uh, this transcendent presence of God actually should affect the way we interpret this united book from beginning to end. So that whether we're coming to a Proverbs 8, or whether we're coming to uh, the sacrifice of Isaac, uh, whatever text it is, we are reading those in light of what God himself intended, and of course, in light of what God himself does through the sending of his own son, Jesus Christ. If you've never read a book by Hans, I would encourage you, there's so many you could pick up, but I would encourage you to read his book, Scripture as Real Presence, Sacramental Exegesis in the Early Church, published by Baker Academic. Or you may uh, be interested in reading another recent book of his, Seeing God, the Beatific Vision in Christian Tradition, published by Erdmans. Hans, thank you so much for coming on the Credo Podcast. Thank you so much for uh, having me, Matthew. It's been a joy to uh, talk with you and get to know you. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.